Hello everyone and welcome to episode 582 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. How did you go over all the festivities this time of year? I, surprise, surprise, probably, well, yeah, I did eat too much, Uh, but that's okay. I suppose you kind of expect that at this time of year. Another thing that often happens at this time of year is that we tend to slow down and if we're not, you know, braving the sales at the shopping malls, we have time to read and, you know, tackle that to-be-read pile that's been sitting there for so long. And I hope you've been able to devour a few fabulous novels over the break. Another byproduct of having a chance to slow down is that we have time to think and we have time to, you know, wonder whether the hamster wheel that we've been on is actually right for us if it really serves us. I mean, that certainly happens to me. It happens to me a lot at this time of year. Well, happens to me every year at this time of year. You know, I finally have time to think about the things that I no longer want to do and the things that I do want to do, of course. For me, this time of year has always been kind of like, to different degrees each year, but often a process of reinvention. And to be honest, that process can be really exciting. Now, some of you may know that I actually started my career off as an accountant. Yes, an accountant. Yes, I did economics and accounting at uni. And then I joined the professional services firm PwC, where I worked as an auditor. I know, an auditor. Now, long-time followers will know this, but if this is news to you, you may be wondering, wait, what? (laughs) I know. You see, even though I loved writing and reading and English at school, it just never occurred to me that I could be a writer. No one in my family was a writer. We didn't know any writers. Um, Everyone I knew when I was growing up because of, you know, my family friendship circle, um, became a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or an accountant. Yes, that's it. As I mentioned, I even joined, yep, the prestigious firm. It was prestigious at the time, PwC, when I graduated. I convinced myself that I could grow to love a career in accounting. You know, even though my interests lay in things that were more creative, as I said, I, you know, loved writing. You know, I convinced myself that I could enjoy climbing the corporate ladder while analyzing numbers every day. You know, I think that was probably because I was at uni when um, Wall Street, the movie with Michael Douglas was on. Who knows? Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with a career in accounting. It's just that ultimately it wasn't for me. For the right person, it is absolutely stimulating, interesting and rewarding. It's just that I chose it for all the wrong reasons. So, and you know, you might be able to relate to this. So, because for months I tried to will myself into liking my job and I just invested three years of my life completing an economics degree, majoring in accounting. So I thought I just had to make it work. Furthermore, the firm I worked for set out a clear career path in front of me. You know, it's it felt like my future was secure. Despite the financial security, as you know, there was security and the bright career prospects, deep down I knew that something wasn't right. And I realized I was spending so many of my waking hours in a job I didn't enjoy. And I soon began to not 
like work at all. I was often late because I hated going into the office. You know, I probably chucked the occasional sickie and began not to care about the quality of my work, which is very un-me. You know, I've always been the kind of person who's tried to do my best in whatever I'm involved with. So I didn't feel great about this. I felt pretty average. And even though I kept up a cheery and enthusiastic appearance for my bosses, to be honest, deep down, I was unmotivated and, you know, really kind of down. And after a, a while, I knew that something had to change because I realized that if I didn't take action, you know, I could see myself potentially staying in a job, just staying in the job for no other reason than I was too scared to do something about it. And that wasn't great. So when I realized that the career I chose wasn't for me, that's like a big realization. And I had to think long and hard about what I wanted to do because I had to realize, well, remember really that I had always loved writing. I loved English at school. I was editor of the school magazine. I used to get picked up at the library every afternoon after school. As a teenager, I read books and magazines from cover to cover. My dream job at the time when I was like 14 or whatever, and I had that job throughout high school, was um, at a newsagent because I could read all the magazines and my boss would let me borrow the magazines overnight and and bring them back. Um, and and the, I guess as a result of that, to get a job in the world of magazines was a huge dream for me. I just never thought it would happen. And so that I didn't pursue it really at university because it wasn't something that I thought was possible. And I don't even know why. It probably comes back to the idea that we find it hard to believe that dreams are actually within our reach, that they can come true. For some reason, I thought it seemed like such a faraway goal and I didn't want to aim so high because I didn't want to be disappointed if I didn't get it. But then I thought about it and I pictured myself five years down the track in a job that I didn't like in, in you know my, my job in accounting and I thought I'd be commuting to this job every day knowing that the na- next eight hours would be awful and it was just too much to bear, right? And it was all in my control. The only person who could do anything to change the situation was me. So I knew that I wasn't actually going to get very far um, if I stayed in my accounting job, you know, hoping that one day a magazine editor would offer me my dream job. And I also realized that having, you know, accountant on my resume probably wasn't going to be the ideal thing that magazine publishers and editors were looking for. So my first step was to start dipping my toe in the water in the world of the, of writing. And I enrolled in a short writing course. And I have to say, I loved every minute of it. You know, it wasn't a chore because I was fascinated by what I was learning. I just loved it. I loved learning about writing. I loved the act of writing. I loved dreaming about being a writer. I, I loved it. Um, and that dread in the pit of my stomach that I used to feel at the thought of going to the job that I hated it disappeared and it was replaced with this fantastic feeling of hope and excitement and anticipation and passion and um, just, yeah, anticipation, right? I was just looking forward to stuff, Uh, not just at the course I was doing, but at the possibility of my future and the possibility that I could reinvent myself from an accountant and from being an accountant into being a writer 
and it seemed possible. Now, of course, to cut a long story short, you probably realize that I managed to reinvent myself and not a day goes by that I'm, you know, not grateful that I, I, that I did that. I know that a lot of people also want to reinvent themselves and over the years, I've literally helped thousands of people do just that. I worked out a step-by-step system on how to make it happen. And even if you only have a vague sense that you want to explore the world of writing, I can give you the steps to help you determine the area you should actually hone in on and the your next steps. And those next steps are going to be different for everyone, but I have a blueprint or a system to work out what your next steps should be. Um, and, and the area that the type of writing that might give you the most joy or satisfaction or, or of course, money, you know, because we all, we've all got to live and pay the mortgage, right? It's not the first time I've reinvented myself. More recently, I decided, well, maybe not to reinvent myself completely, but, well, kind of reinvent myself. But, you know, I wanted to add to my career portfolio to become an artist as well. So I, you know, I'm still heavily um, involved in the world of writing. I still love writing, but I wanted to also explore that visual artist side. So I applied the exact same principles to reinvent myself to that area of my life as well. But I'm telling you this because if you want to reinvent yourself, you can. And I've mapped it all out for you in a course called Reinvent Yourself So You Want to Be a Writer. This is an online video course, which is full of inspiration, but If you know anything about me, it's also full of really practical steps that you can take to make things happen. And since it's this time of year, which is no better time to reinvent yourself, I'm making it available to you at 30% off. You can find it at writerscenter.com.au slash reinvent yourself. That's writerscenter.com.au slash reinvent yourself. Check it out you might think it's just what you need for this time of year. Now it's time for Nat Newman with our writing tip this week. How are you, Nat? I'm knackered. How are you, Valerie? (laughs) That's a pretty accurate word, I think, you know, after the intensity of 2023. um, I'm trying to have a bit of a break, but I'm not very good at at that. No, neither of us are, though, are we? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Are you doing together? (laughs) (laughs) Like activities from six a.m. until midnight. (laughs) Oh my god, that's hilarious! Um, What? uh, But are you trying to enforce any kind of you know restful activity? Oh, you know, it's always a nice theory, but it doesn't happen. I I just get anxious, and I'm like, oh no, I have to, I have to do some things. I haven't done anything today. I have to (laughs) go to the gym. I have to read some Italian. I have to. Where's my Swedish textbook? <laughs> I was so deluded one one year that before Christmas, I wrote on my to-do list of, you know, the things that I was going to do between Christmas and New Year. And, um, and, and I wrote, learn how to code. Oh, my God. <laughs> I even went and bought like three books on coding <laughs> before Christmas so that I had them ready for after Christmas to learn how to code. Did I learn how to code? No, I did not. Oh my god! Did you at it's least a have bit harder? <laughs> Sorry, what was that? Have some time off, or did you just start coding and think, "Oh no, wait, this is impossible"? 
I can't remember I had some time off. I probably replaced the coding with something else, but I obviously was so deluded and soon realized, oh, you can't learn how to code in five days. So (laughs) it's ridiculous. Um, All right. What's our writing tip this week? Well, I figure that lots of people are starting to think about New Year resolutions. Oh, yes. Um, Yes. Do you do them? Uh, no, I set intentions um, for the mm. year. So um, so for 2023, I can't even remember now, but I think my intention was more me, which is why I ended up doing so much theatre and, and projects. I was just like, I want to be me, but more. <laughs> that was my I intention. I want to be me, but more. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and, and a couple of years ago, I'm trying to think, my best friend came up with a great one. She was the one who got me onto setting intentions. Um, but, yeah, it's just sort of, it's, it's more like setting a vibe for the year like this is this is what I want to aim for rather than this is what I am going to achieve which I think yeah um for me 2023 was um I the the word I thought of because I started 2023 incredibly intense intensively and and intensely because I had an art exhibition on in January or something so I literally worked through uh, it was practically every waking hour over the Christmas period to get ready for that. And I was exhausted. And then I, and then the exhibition was on and then there was the aftermath of the exhibition. And I was basically utterly exhausted because I didn't have a break, you know, at all. And so my word for myself was not more me. (laughs) It was, it was space. And I didn't even know what that meant. I just felt it was necessary. And I didn't even know what to do do to for this word to kind of manifest itself in my life but uh by the end of the year I kind of figured out that um I guess subconsciously what I did was um I love days with no meetings Mm. because there's space right and so if I did have to have meetings I tried to batch them all on the same day so that other days would have that lovely blank space in my diary or I tried to, you know, actually not have meetings <laughs> where, where possible. Um, so, yeah, sometimes you don't even know what to do to do the more me or to make the space. Yeah. But if, if as long as, as you say, have that intention, it somehow works itself out. Yeah, I think so. And, like, yeah, you sort of, like I say, it's like the vibe. You don't really know mm. what it's going to mean and how it's going to manifest itself. But, yeah, you give yourself a word, space, time, whatever it is, and and, and go with it. Yeah. What's yours going to be for 2024? Have you thought about it yet? I haven't, actually. Um, Possibly... I don't know. Even more of me. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't have another year like 2023. That was just a bit too full on. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think maybe focus might be Ooh, what I need okay. to do for 2024 because I've been doing all the things, hashtag all the things. Yeah. Um, so maybe I do need to, um, maybe I do need to rein it back. <laughs> maybe just one <laughs> language in 2024. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I love it. I haven't thought of mine yet. I, I feel like it might have something to do with streamline, but um, I'm mm. not sure yet. So not saying that out loud. So what's our tip for this week? Well, even though I just said, you know, you, <laughs> you don't need to have resolutions and we should go for vibes. However, I do <laughs> think one thing I learned many, many years ago, um, a really good thing to set for yourself as a writer, no matter what stage you're at, is to aim for rejections. I know. (laughs) Um, So, and I think this is something I'm pretty sure I had a fantastic creative writing um, teacher back in 
uni, you know, 200 years ago when I was at uni. Um, and he forced us to, and back in those days, we had to send stories out, uh, you know, we had to print it out on paper, put it in an envelope, <laughs> uh, include a stamped self-addressed envelope if we wanted it returned or if we wanted our rejection notice returned you to sound us. sounds so old. I know. Um, Do you remember we had that intern who asked me if when I was at school I used Slate? <gasps> oh, my God, really? <laughs> like the Flintstones. <laughs> that's crazy. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, I, I don't know if I've heard that story before, but that's nuts. <laughs> she, since growing up, has become a head teacher of English. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway. Well, hopefully her students ask her if she ever used Slate. <laughs> Anyway, sorry um, to interrupt. Sorry, yeah. So anyway, so my my writing teacher actually made us. Uh, it was part of our um, part of part of our course. We had to actually submit. I think we had to submit to two journals, um, a short story at that time, and then he gave us the advice um, as we were finishing up the year. He said, next year, you know, don't aim for um, acceptances, aim for rejections, because every time you get a rejection, it means you've actually sent something. Uh, so, uh, and it, it takes so much pressure off you if you're. Because if you set yourself a goal, I'm going to get accepted or I'm going to be published in five journals next year, mm. A, it's it's not easy to do, um, but B, what happens if you actually do succeed and you get five things accepted by March? What are you going to do for the rest of the year? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> so, um, but also it just takes so much pressure off yourself. You know, 10 rejections, it just means you send out 10 stories and there's no pressure yeah. on yourself. Okay. This has to get published, you know, aim for the New Yorker magazine. Absolutely. Aim, for, aim as high as you like. Um, yeah. And then, and when you get that rejection, be proud. I sent something to Overland. I sent something to Granta. I sent something to whoever you sent it to, you know, be proud yes. of those rejections. And same with that. If you're, if you're, um, if you've got a novel at the moment out on submission or you're trying to approach agents, obviously tailor your approaches. Don't send. Yes you know um, don't send rubbish <laughs> yeah exactly yeah don't send rubbish and also don't send you know a picture book to someone who only publishes you know women's fiction or memoir or something um so you know still be strategic with where you send things but yes when you get that rejection be proud of that rejection and put that up on your wall and go yes that's another one down and once you've got your 10 that's it you're done for the year <laughs> I really like that reframing because as yeah. you say it takes the pressure off I absolutely think that's applicable in not just in writing, but in so many aspects of life, because so many times we don't do things because we're scared we're not going to get it or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, and what's that phrase? You miss a hundred percent of the shots that you don't take. So this yes. takes the pressure off and makes you take the shot. Yeah. And also yeah. it does sort of allow you to aim high because if you're aiming for an, a rejection, you can aim for the New Yorker Yeah. because, because why not, you know? Um, a, a friend of mine, um, this was many years ago, but, um, I, I said to him something along the lines of, oh, I've, I've never gone for a job interview and not gotten it. And he said, oh, well, you have, I don't think you're aiming very high then. And it cut me at the time, but I thought he's right. I, you know, if you keep it, it and yeah, like you're saying, it's the same with, with life, with jobs. If you keep going for low level jobs, you'll keep getting them. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, once, once you're brave and you actually go for the CEO or the head of something, you'll be surprised. You might get it. You just don't know. Yeah. I love the reframing. Thank you so much for your tip this week, Nat. All right. Thank you.
Let's move on to our competition. Now, because this is the Christmas break, our competition last week is still open. That is where I had three copies of The Broken Wave by Matthew Ryan Davies. And entries close on the 2nd of January. So this particular competition is open for two weeks because of this uh, Christmas New Period. This is the one where it is the dual timeline and it's a gripping mystery that explores the enduring impact of childhood trauma, unexpected connections and the enduring strength of friendship. Now you can enter this competition at writerscentercomau slash win. That's The Broken Wave by Matthew Ryan Davies. That's writercenter.com.au slash win. And now, are you ready for the word of the week? This is our last word of the week for the year, for 2023. All right, the word of the week this week is exigent. That's E-X-I-G-E-N-T, exigent. Now, it sounds like it might be related to exiting or leaving the building, but actually it's an adjective meaning requiring immediate action or aid, urgent or pressing. It can also mean requiring a great deal or more than reasonable. So you could say Max ran through the supermarket spurred on by his exigent need to use the toilet. (laughs) Has that happened to you? (laughs) All right, that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Let's hear from Sarah Bailey. My name's Sarah Bailey. Um, I've got a debut novel through Alan and Umlin out at the moment. It's called The Dark Lake, it's a crime thriller. I was working in advertising at the time and I was working at a great company and had a really sort of good career, but I just had this burning desire to write all the time. I'd heard really good things about the Australian Writer Centre's course. Um, the reviews were always really positive and people always sort of providing really good feedback on social media. So. Um, I just thought that was a really good place for me to start. I found Nicole Hayes, the tutor that I had in the course that I did through the Australian Writers' Centre, really inspiring. Um, Really down-to-earth teaching style, but just a really great way of um, pulling together some of the writing skills that she's picked up over the years. She had such a passion for narrative and structure um, and being a published author, she had some some really practical um, advice and knowledge to share as well. The process for me was just setting my own deadlines, which was something that was covered off in the Australian Writer Centre's course as well. Went, this is how many words I'd like to have by these different points along the year. And then I um, just worked towards getting the words down. And then I sort of um, approached agents, and then the agents helped me approach publishers. In the end, when Alan and Unwin decided to publish the novel and um, that was all confirmed, it was, it was amazing. It was just such an amazing um, experience to go through and I felt really fortunate, um, but also really proud because it had obviously been you know, a really hard, um, hard sort of journey to get there. Through the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I discovered that writing was something that was really, really important to me. And then of course, you know, through meeting the people and the tutor that I had, I also picked up a lot of really invaluable skills as well. I think it really just set me off on the right path. Um, And then since then, obviously, 
so much has happened in my world in terms of writing that I really do see it as the first step um, that, I, that I took along that path. It's amazing. I've, I feel very, very fortunate to be in the position where that's, that's my current life. So I think that was, a, that was hugely important um, in terms of getting, getting started. Definitely anyone who's interested in writing and sort of taking a, a, a more serious step toward that as a career or even just a, a more specific hobby. I think the Australian Writer Centre's courses are really worthwhile. I think it's just, it's always nice to be um, in an environment where people are passionate about what you're passionate about. Um, and I think that the, um, the skills and the information that you get from, from courses like that just, just help you sort of really focus. For me, the creative writing course was, was a great starting point. I think it just made me um, rediscover my love for writing at a basic level all over again. Um, so I think that I've definitely spoken to other friends and have suggested that they give it a shot. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. And now for our writer in residence this week. Chris Hammer is a leading Australian author of crime fiction. His latest novel is The Seven, and it is a page turner. His first book, Scrublands, was an instant bestseller when it was published in mid-2018. It won the prestigious UK Crime Writers Association John Creasy Award for a debut crime novel in 2019 and was shortlisted for various awards in Australia and the US. Scrublands has been sold into translation in several foreign languages and a television series based on Scrublands is also on the streaming service Stan. I've watched the whole thing and it's awesome. Chris's other books include Silver, Trust, Treasure and Dirt and The Tilt and are also bestsellers and all have been shortlisted for major literary prizes. Thanks so much for joining us today, Chris. Oh, it's great to be here. Great to be back. Congratulations on the seven. Oh my God. Page Turner, absolute cracker, so good, so much to discuss. For people who haven't uh, got a copy yet, can you tell us what it's about? Okay, so this is crime fiction and it's another novel uh, featuring the two homicide detectives, Nell Buchanan and Ivan Lukic. So in that sense, it's a follow-up from Treasure and Dirt and The Tilt, um, but as is the case with most crime fiction series that could absolutely be read as standalone. Uh, the setup is this, it's, it's set in a fictional uh, irrigation area called Uwundery, uh, based loosely on the uh, Murrumbidgee irrigation area, those sort of towns of Leeton and Griffith that are um, not your typical country towns. This is, though is fictional because unlike the, the real life schemes that are sort of run by you know, set up by governments. This has been set up by a um, hundred years ago by seven local families. And that's where the title of seven comes from. These old grazing families that have set up this irrigation scheme, which has done very well. Everyone, everyone seems to prosper, um, all the small landholders, whatever, but no one quite as much as these seven powerful families. Anyway, what happens, the, um, the book starts and in rather spectacular circumstances, a body is found in an irrigation canal in this irrigation scheme. Um, it's a local accountant. He's a member of one of these seven families, uh, a junior member, if you like, and Nell and Ivan are sent to investigate. And pretty soon, they as they start digging, they you know, uncover 
more criminality. Uh, they start to wonder what the Seven's really up to. Uh, they become aware that there's a kind of a threat of violence and there is violence. And so they're finding themselves, if you like, in a race against time to catch the killer or killers before they kill again. So, so far, so typical crime novel, right? But right from the start, there are these two other stories interwoven into the narrative that at first glance don't appear to have anything, any obvious connection with Ivan and Nell's uh, investigation, except for one thing, they're both set in the same place, you're wondering. There's one storyline told through the eyes of a young university student called Davis. Now, Davis is just 21, but he's the heir to one of these family fortunes of the, of the seven families. He's been off at university getting a bit of polish uh, before he uh, has to take over his responsibilities. He's been doing a history degree at Melbourne Uni. He's invited to do an honours thesis in history. So he thinks, well, I should write the history of this irrigation scheme. So he sets uh, out to research that and lo and behold, he starts finding a few skeletons in a few cupboards. The third storyline is set way back before the scheme is even sort of developed. It starts in 1913. It's told through the letters of a young part Indigenous servant girl. Uh, she's 15 when her story begins um, and it's told through letters. So at first the reader can't really see any connection at all between these three stories apart from the, the setting, the location. And, but of course, they're in the same book. So you've got to suspect that sooner or later, there will be some connections. And yes, as the story unfolds, as the book unfolds, the narrative continues, the reader starts seeing the connections between these three eras and these three characters or three sets of characters. And by the end of the book, um, pretty much everything is connected. It's almost like the fates of the, of the three characters is connected over time. I think it's a great technique that you've employed there with the multiple timelines because, you know, from the get-go, you do uh, have this anticipation of how is this all going to play out? How are these all going to connect? So your this story has so many layers, not only in the multiple timelines, but in the depth, the, the richness um, of, of the town, and but also the, the, the detail of things like an irrigation screen, uh, um, scheme, you know, um, and and even the the detail that you have in scenes that you think, how does Chris know that? Come on, does he really go water skiing to that level? <laughs> so so it it has so many layers, and I'd just love to unpick or or ask you where did it start? Where did the idea start? Because there are so many entry points that I could see. I was a journalist for 30 years and I did report from time to time, you know, out in rural New South Wales, including at some of these irrigation schemes. I wrote a non-fiction book called The River, where I travelled through the Murray-Darling Basin at the height of the, the Great Millennium Drought, so the summer of 2008, 2009. So I learned about water trading there. Um, and how the water was divvied up between different states and different 
irrigation areas and the environment and all of that. So I had a bit of background knowledge about it. And then my previous book that came out last October, October last year, called The Tilt, was set in the Barma Millawa Forest. So again, I had a water was a was a big part of it. And I was, as I was writing that, I was thinking, oh, maybe I can bring in a kind of a, a water training or a water theft sort of storyline. And it didn't work out, but the store, that sort of stuck with me and suggested, you know, that was one of the seeds, I guess, for this book, The Seven. Okay, so you've got, as you said, multiple timelines, the present or, you know, around the present, um, the early 90s, so 30 years ago, and as you say, you know, the early 1900s. Why did you choose to tell the uh, early 1900 ones in letters? It, it's to, to, there's a few reasons. It's to separate the different voices of the different characters. So, for example, the, the story that's set in the present day, and it's told from the perspective, in this case, of Ivan, you know, one of the detectives, it's told in the present tense. The story with Davis uh, in the 1990s is told in the past tense. So it's a switch from one point of view or one timeline to another, there's very clear change in the language. And then the letters separated again. So they've, they're, they're sort of contemporaneous, almost like present tense, except set in the past. And also it gave me a way, I think, it can be a bit tricky um, telling a story from a character with an Indigenous background. So it meant that it was a little bit arms length in a sense, because in a letter, it may reveal the inner thinkings of a person, their inner beliefs, or maybe it's them simply presenting a facade to the world. You know, it's kind of like letters a hundred years ago, or maybe a bit like Instagram is today. You know, are you really <laughs> relating what happened to you today or are you putting <laughs> a sort of polish on it? And the way that the, the three storylines are told, that the the tense, the language, whatever sort of feeds back into the way the story is told. But what it does mean is there's a clear separation between the, the three storylines. In that book I mentioned from last year, The Tilt, it's a similar. It's, it's Nell who t who's telling the story in the present day. There's another story in the um, 1970s told in the past tense, a teenage girl. And then the tilt, there's a storyline from an 11-year-old boy set in the forest during the Second World War, but it's told in the voice of an old man recollecting what happened when he was an 11-year-old boy in the forest. So again, it's that separation between the three tenses, but also the, the language and the voice that's involved. Did you know from the get-go that you were going to do three timelines or did that emerge after you kind of thought about the, the plot and the book a bit more? Look, what happened in, in um, so the seventh is my, um, the seven is my sixth crime book. My first book, Scrublands, which featured a journalist called Martin Scarson, is pretty much all told just from one point of view, yeah, in the present tense. Um, and a completely chronological. But in that book and subsequent books, what I found was often the crime in the present day 
is actually the result of a chain of events that have been set in motion years or decades in the past. And this, um, this became apparent to me with my fourth book, Treasure and Dirt. That's the first book with these two detectives, Ivan and Nell. And they go to this opal mining town and you've got the two points of view. So you're playing between them, but both in the present tense. But sure enough, they discover crimes that happened seven years ago or a couple of decades ago. And so by the end, second half of the book, they're learning about all these things that happened in the past. But that means there's a fair bit of exposition in the second half of the book. And so I had to really work to make sure that that wasn't sort of slowing the pace, dragging the book down. And then I thought, look, there's an old piece of rightly advice, which I'm sure you'd be familiar with, Valerie, which is show, don't tell. And so what was happening is Ivan and Nell were being told stuff or discovering stuff. It was almost like the reader was being told along with them rather than being shown. So when I started writing The Tilt, and once again, it started to become apparent that the crime in the present day was, as I say, is the end result of a long chain of events that started many years ago. I thought, look, I won't, I won't tell, I'll show. I'll write the story as it happened. And then part of the fun of that is the reader is joining the dots and maybe at certain points in the book, the reader might be ahead of where Nell and Ivan are because they're reading, you know, Nell and Ivan don't know any of this stuff yet. Um, one of the tr problems with it is in telling these stories from the past, it's just deciding who's going to be the point of view character. You know, is it the criminal? Is it the victim? Is it a bystander? Is it someone who's so, you know, it's, is uh, involved in some other way. Uh, so that that's a kind of an issue to wrestle with. Um, uh, with this book, The Seven, I had a point of view character, an old character that I brought back from a previous book. And I was writing her into it as if she was returning to her old hometown, she was helping investigate. In the end, it didn't work. So I had to scrap all of, all of that. And I think over time, I, I, I came out with these the three point of view characters. The one in the present day, the police investigator is obvious in a way. It's it's either going to be Ivan or Nell, but not both. Uh, but it's those ones in the past that are a bit tricky. And so there was, yeah, a lot of um, a lot of mucking around, I guess you could say, before I finally settled on those two. So when you are planning out your story and you're thinking about what's going to happen, what does that look like? Are you are you planning out three different arcs and then putting them, you know, interspersing them together or or is it a hot mess or or Oh, it's or, an absolute mess. <laughs> I'm not I'm 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 not a plotter. I'm you know, I'm a so-called pantser. The story develops with me. And with the three timelines, it makes it even messier because I'm trying to I don't really know where they're going. And then in some ways it helps because if something happens in one story, I think, oh, that could flow on like that, or maybe that could be preceded by this. But then stitching them together so they make sense to the reader that, that the reading experience is relatively seamless and the pace, you know, one storyline isn't getting too far ahead of the others or another storyline's not dragging behind the others. 
so there's a lot of to and fro and rewrites and reimaginings and I mean it's not at all efficient it's but it's what what I end up doing even when I try planning and plotting stuff out to try and reduce that kind of wastage of words it just doesn't work for me so can you give us just a bit of a timeline of when you started the book like when you got the idea when you started the really getting into the, the the first draft, how long that took, um, and then, you know, the your your, your self editing after that. So ever since Scrublands came out, I've had a book published every year. So and the last four or five have been in October every year. So in one sense, it's it takes me a year to write a book. Um, what's happened typically is I've been finishing one book. The next book has started suggesting itself to me. Uh, so there's a kind of flow on from one book to another. Um, so to have a book published in um, October, typically I need to deliver about the end of February. So the best polish sort of draft I can. And because of my method, that might have a number on it like 10 or 12. Doesn't mean that I've done 12 complete drafts. It means at some point I've, I've gone, oh, this is getting too messy. I need to re reset, rewrite. And then it, the editing process takes maybe um, four months, backwards and forwards, you know, structural edit, line edit, proof edits. And at some point while that uh, those edits are going in those weeks where I don't have it. I'm starting, not really writing, but to think about what the next book might be. So by the time I finally sign off on the on the final edits in say early July, then I start then I start getting serious about the next book, knowing knowing that that book I've just signed off in July will not be published for another three months. So I'm trying to make the, the best of my time. So that's where I am now. So I'm, I'm sort of into the next book, but I'm, to be serious, I'm having real kind of problems with it. And a lot of it is around that establishing, establishing who the point of view characters are. The story seems to have the th and again, it's a similar sort of structure, three timelines, three point of view characters. The story's evolving quite well, but the telling of the story is still problematic. So we let's take the seven then. You said that you're not a plotter. So what did you have when you started? Um, I had the idea of an irrigation scheme. I was thinking... I'd heard about this little town where there were seven dominant families from way back in their history. So I thought, and that's all I know. I don't know anything about them or how it operates or, or whatever. So I don't, I'm not going to mention the town in case I'm defaming someone <laughs> or, or it might not even be true. But I thought, well, that's a good idea. What happens in a town like that? I had the sort of idea about water trading, water theft. Um, so that was a story. Then I had the idea of, I thought an accountant being murdered would be interesting because um, accountants in, in, in real life, but certainly in small towns, 
have an insight into the financial affairs of a lot of the people in the town. It's quite a, you know, like lawyers or whatever, it's a privileged position, doctors. And so I thought, well, if uh, an accountant was murdered, then the immediate suspicion is it, has he or she seen something, you know, in the, in the dealings with their clients that has raised a red flag or somehow compromised and whatever. So, so I had water training, I had the seven families, I had an accountant murdered, and that was about it. That, that's where I started. So I reckon I start, when I'm starting to write a book, the things that I need to get underway is a setting. So for me, that's there right from the start. Maybe some sort of issue. So in this one, it was water trading. Now there's a number of other issues, if you like, that are in the seven, including uh, organised crime, political donations, indigenous dispossession. There's a whole lot of ideas, if you like, but I started with that one sort of water trading, water theft. Um, a crime. So in this case, it was the discovery of the body of the accountant. And also what I'm realising now, the other thing that, that the sooner I can nail down, the better is those points of view of the characters telling the story. And that's where I've been caught up this time. But with the seven, that fell into place after that, that um, false start. By the end, once it had fallen into place after that, it was fairly smooth. So with your characters, I mean, certainly the point of view characters, but also, um, you know, the other main characters in the book, they are so, um, different's not the word, they're so distinctive. In terms of your characterization, uh, what do you do to get to know their backstory? Do you, do you already think that all through before you start writing? How do you develop your characters into the, being such vivid people? I just through the writing and the rewriting, as I said, I do many drafts. So, so they might, a minor character might start as, um, if like a plot point. Ivan and Nell are investigating. They need to find something out. Maybe they can find a document, an old newspaper or something, um, or someone can tell them something. So they're running into this character. And at that point, the character is purely functional. They're less there to tell Ivan and Nell something. But hey, if you're going to have a character, why not make them interesting? Make them quirky or funny or bizarre or sinister or violent or whatever. And then from that, they can, they can grow. And sometimes they're an interesting character, but, a, you know, a, a rather transitory character. But sometimes then they grow more and more. And, and lo and behold, as the story develops, I bring them back. I mean, as a general rule, you want to limit your cast of characters, I guess. You know, the more characters you have, the more sprawling it becomes and, and more difficult for a reader, I guess, to get their mind through. So if you can have the same character, if you like, fulfilling different roles, that's helpful, I think. Um, but with me, they kind of grow and grow and grow, and sometimes they, they become real... Um, you're very three-dimensional and very active and um, very alive in my imagination. But it's it's not preordained. It's in the writing that I discover that. 
Now, you've been on the podcast before, but in case there's some new listeners who haven't caught the other episode, just remind us, I mean, you have been you were a journalist for decades and you were covering, you know, a whole range of issues, but including politics, headline front page kind of stuff. What was the thing that made you think, I'm going to write fiction and I'm going to write crime novels? Uh, well, well, I got sacked. <laughs> That's part of it. Um, look, I... I got to a po- I'd written two non-fiction books, which I really enjoyed. Uh, narrative non-fiction, so not an objective scholarly work, not footnotes and indexes. Um, the first one, as I said, was travelling through the Murray-Darling Basin at the height of that terrible drought. And I'm telling a story. And the story is me moving through that landscape and me exploring the history and the cultural significance and the indigenous culture and the lot of the irrigators and what was happening to the environment but it's it's through my eyes i'm telling a story and i i really enjoyed that and then i did a second book similar like um a companion piece traveling down the east coast of australia that's that's not as good because i ran out of time and money um, but I like the river very much. I like writing books, but I couldn't make any money out of it. So I went back to journalism. But I had a job. I, was, I went back to the Sydney Morning Herald in the Age, but on this second occasion, I wasn't there as a writer. I said, more producing TV or video, online video. And so I wasn't writing so much in my job, and I missed it. I didn't have the time or the resources to do nonfiction, so I thought I'll try my hand at fiction. I'll just try making something up. And my intention was was certainly to get published, but because of my experience with the nonfiction, I expected I could get published, but it wouldn't be a living. And it was more like maybe this is something I do when I retire. Um, so in retrospect, I think I really benefited from that because I wasn't trying to write a bestseller or a prize winner or anything like that. I was just writing for my own enjoyment, if you like. I, th- I suspect that book, which became Scrablands, was probably a little uh, less restrained and not targeted or anything like that because that was probably um, more original than it might have otherwise been. So it was... And then Scrublands, of course, did really well, and I was able to become a, a full-time writer. Uh, but it was very fortuitous because by the around the time I finished writing the manuscript and sent it to an agent, it was around about the time I lost my job. I was they closed down the video production areas, um, so I, I had a brief career working for a politician just for a few weeks. But then I was able to quit because I got this wonderful book deal. okay so scrublands not only became a bestseller like right now only a couple of weeks ago the television series of scrublands dropped on stan it's stan right yeah and i've binged the whole thing i binged it in like record time i'm sure it's absolutely fantastic this is your first novel and it's become this incredible um adaptation with you know some of the best actors in Australia it's also incredibly well done um I loved it I love tv I can say this because I I consider myself somewhat of a connoisseur of tv 
Tell us when you got the news, like, because it's interesting to know the time frame of these things, that people were interested in turning this into a television series and also then when it became real because people, you know, express interest but it doesn't necessarily come to fruition. So tell us about that experience and what your involvement was. Okay. It was optioned, which means... You know, a production company gave me money so they'd have exclusive rights to develop it in 2017, a year before the book was published. So so right as we were signing book deals here and overseas, in that same kind of frame time, we were, we were signing an option. Now, a lot of things get optioned. A lot of books get optioned for TV or for film, and the percentage the ones that actually get made is really low. I've heard figures of under 3%. I've heard figures of under 1%. So there's this kind of land grab for rights of books, but then so many fall by the wayside. And a lot of it in the early days, it's just about getting the finance to make it. So you get optioned by a production company, but they just, they just can't make it on specs. They've got to go to you know, the TV channels to distributors, to the state and federal funding bodies. And there's all this backwards and forwards about money. Um, so with Scrublands at one stage, it looked like there was a lot of British money uh, interested. And so we'd have to cast British actors for it. Uh, then at one point it was being set up as a six part series, like six one hours and some money from, I think it was Screen Australia fell through. And so they cut it back to four. So there's a lot of to and froing. Um, the, the production company behind it, Easy Tiger, is a great Australian production company. So they're the makers of the Jack Irish series, Peter Temple's books. Also Rake, uh, Colin from Accounts at the moment, The 12 with Sam Neill, great track record. Um, and a friend of mine was the chief writer on it, Felicity Packard. And I think she was a real driving force that kept it kept it alive, if you like. So it's like six years between the time that that first option uh, was signed and then it's actually been finished. But that's not unusual. There's a lot of, um, uh, you know, if you think of uh, Jane Harper's books, they're being turned into films now. It's a, sim you know, it's a, much bigger scale, of course, much more money involved with a feature film. But the, the timeline is, is kind of similar. Um, now, as for my involvement, uh, practically nothing, to be honest. Um, and I'm quite happy with that. I, um, books are keeping me really busy. I like writing books. I want to get better at writing books. I don't want to spread myself too thin. The people in the writer's room really know what they're doing. The Adaptation of the book, it's quite different. The plot is quite different in places. So they've reimagined it, what they think will work better on screen than, say, on the page. In a way, I think it's good that I'm not there, you know, trying to protect my book, that they've got the freedom to do that. Um, yeah, so I... But it's been received very well. It's It's been... Um, it's been shown on the BBC in the UK and it's going in the States and New Zealand and Europe, whatever. Um, and you're already working on a sequel, which I, I don't think has been green lit yet, 
which means all the money's been approved, but the signs are good. It has been incredibly well received and obviously exposing you to a whole, you know, other audience as well. Now, because I was talking to some people the other day and we were saying, you know, sometimes you a reader doesn't discover an author till their fifth book or their sixth book, you know, later for whatever reason. So, but we were saying that you're one of those authors that when people discover you, they go back and they read every book because it's such a great experience. So on that then, before we finish up, <laughs> what are your top three tips to listeners who would just love to be in a position where you are one day? I don't mean in terms of getting published. I mean in terms of writing such fantastic stories that just grip people and make them stay up late. Look, I, I think... What I've learned is, you know, I was saying how you know, I can't really plot things out. It, it comes from writing. And maybe it's, it's also from my journalistic background, but the writing comes first. Don't wait for inspiration and then start writing. If you start writing, then the inspiration will come. And that certainly happens to me. Some days I just don't feel like writing, but half an hour, an hour in, the ideas start coming. And then a few hours later, I look back and, you know, I've got 1,500 words or 2,000 words. I go, hey, that was pretty good. Where did that come from? So I think, right, everything else, you know, don't worry about social media or anything else, but just just write and you'll get better. Um, I, I feel I'm getting better. I think I'm a better writer now than, say, when I was writing Scrublands. Doesn't mean every book's going to be better. Um, I think also just really go with what feels good for you rather than trying to write to a market or writing what you think publishers are interested in. Because even if you do that well, you might do it so well that the, that the publisher agent goes, hey, that is just like Chris Hammer's book or it's just like that and I won't be as interested. So, so try and be original and the best way I think to be original is just try and write what you would like to read. Um, and the other thing is just persistence, stick with it. What I've what I've learned in the last five or six years, you know, as I've been invite, lucky to be invited to some writers' festivals, including ones overseas, and I've met some really big international bestsellers. They'll all say they've got a book or two in the bottom drawer that they didn't think was good enough to send off or that they did send off and just got rejected. Or, you know, it's as you said, it's three or four books in before they've taken off. Um, and I think that just comes to an attitude of writing, which is, you know, we all dream of writing the first book that's gonna, you know, make our name. But really that's not what writing is about. Writing is about a lifelong pursuit of wanting to do it and some books will do better than others it's sort of I, I wouldn't really put myself in a position of being that really resilient persistent but you know I do have a novel in the bottom drawer that I tried writing in, in my 20s which is absolutely disastrous I did write those two non-fiction books which I enjoyed very much but you know sold nothing so I think I think that persistence is so um, write, try and write as much as you can, try and be original, 
and stick with it. Wonderful. And thank you so much for your time today, Chris. Everyone, get yourself a copy of The Seven. It's absolutely brilliant um, and I really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks very much, Valerie. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Chris. Now, before we say goodbye for the year, I am going to leave you with this fun fact. And I thought about this the other day because I went to the optometrist. <laughs> um, have you ever wondered why the center of your eye is called a pupil? Well, it is actually related to the word for a child who goes to school, you know, a school pupil. It's because when you look into someone's eyes, you see a little version of yourself. And the original Latin word, pupillae, P-U-P-I-L-E, means little girl or doll. There you go, pupil. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode and to the close of the year. It's the final episode for the year. So the next time I talk to you will be in 2024. Very exciting. I hope you have a big year planned. Now, I'd love to connect with you guys on social media. In the first instance, if you want to join the listener community on Facebook, just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. It's free to join. Love to have you in there. Some fantastic people there from all walks of life, aspiring and emerging and established writers and other people in the industry. So, you know, it's a good place to connect. Also, you can feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm mainly on Instagram these days. You can feel free to connect with me on Facebook too if you like. I'm less on Twitter, I must admit. Lately, I feel like I'm having an existential crisis every time on, on Twitter because it's like, why am I here? Uh, but anyway, yes, feel free to connect with me on Instagram. I'm at Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O. And you can check out my life and more, my more recent reinvention that I referred to at the start of the episode um, in my artistic journey over at ValerieKoo.com. That's my website and you can sign up to the newsletter there if you want some behind the scenes looks at um, life in an artistic studio, something a bit different. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.